Father, that's our prayer. And through your word, may you draw us closer to yourself. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You don't have to live very long to realize that human relationships are difficult. We have relationship problems in our families. We have relationship problems with our friends. I suspect that every one of you could pretty quickly recall today a time when you had a relationship problem with someone. And in fact, even as you're sitting here this morning, the problem may still not yet be resolved and you, you think of it even in this moment. And it's nagging at you. It's bugging you. It's eating away at you. We'd like to think that relationship problems disappear when we enter the doors of the church. But we know they don't. Most of the, most of the, the splits that churches have had and the creating of factions within the church, most of those have not been theological or biblical. They're relational. People come to disagreements over color of the carpet or how you're going to design a program or the kind of worship style or just a plain power struggle. Our struggle with healthy relationships is not something new. The fact that we struggle with human relationships is not news to Jesus. The Gospels give us a number of stories when Jesus confronts his disciples because they're fighting with each other. And I wonder, when I read the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel, if it isn't isn't the catalyst for this, isn't another one of their disagreements. Fighting over who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're, they're arguing about who's closer to Jesus. They're, they're debating which of one of them is more spiritual. And Jesus says to them, oh, no, no, no. You, got, you guys don't understand. That's not what my kingdom is about. You have to think differently. You have to treat each other differently. And in these first six verses of of the 17th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus lays out some ground rules, some important relationship principles that I think are as relevant for us today as the newspaper you read this morning or the text message you're going to send this afternoon. And he begins by saying in verses 1 to 3 that we adjust our behavior because of our influence on other people. It's bad when people sin. But... Woe to the person that causes that sin. And he's particularly concerned about what he calls the little ones. The people who are less mature in the faith. Children. People who don't understand as much about the faith. People who are in a position of being needy. Right before this is a story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is a beggar. I think he would be one of those little ones. 
Jesus is concerned about our witness and our influence. We live in a culture that continually tells us, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter how other people perceive it. It doesn't matter your influence on other people. You just, you're just about yourself. And we all have a tendency to fall into that trap. But Jesus says you can't do whatever you want because other people are watching, particularly people who are most impressed and impressionable by your behavior. And one sign of a healthy Christ-like spirit is being willing to sacrifice your own urges because of the way they might influence other people negatively. He says in the next part that we, we stick out our necks to confront others who are going down a harmful path. Your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, that's sometimes a dangerous thing to say because I've known people who have said to me, I have the, the spirit of, con- I have the gift of confrontation. I'm not sure that is a gift, but they thought it was. Usually, if you think you have that gift, it's not in the right spirit. It's not what Jesus is talking about. It, it's, a, it's, it's, con- it's confrontation. It's, it's working toward restoration. It's because we see someone we care about making decisions and going down a path that leads to destruction. And we stick out our necks. We risk to go to them and say, I'm worried about you. We do it in a spirit of love and of grace. But again, you can't just worry about yourself. We're responsible for other people. And then in verses 3 and 4, he says we offer forgiveness anytime another disciple asks for it. Someone has described the human race like porcupines huddling together on a cold winter's night. The colder it gets outside, the more we want to move together. But the more we move together, the more we stick each other. And unfortunately, what we tend to do as human beings is say, I don't like the pain, so I will just live cold and lonely and exclude myself from other people. We drift apart. We go out on our own and we freeze to death in our loneliness. Jesus says, there is a better way. You can put your quills aside and you can forgive. And you need to forgive not once or twice, but endlessly, no matter what. It's a real test of our faith. Your spouse hurts you again. You forgive again. Your child lies to you again. You forgive again. A friend says something about you. To someone else and you hear about it again. You forgive again. It doesn't downplay the seriousness of sin. It simply raises the importance of forgiveness as a part of the kingdom. What Jesus is really saying in these verses is that we need to think more about other people than about ourselves. We need to put our own needs and desires second to the needs and the desires of other people. That's how Christian relationships work and prosper. And I think most of us know that's true. We just aren't all that thrilled to hear about it. We're skeptical if we can even do it. Just like the disciples, they hear Jesus say this, and how do they respond? Oh, man. 
increase our faith. I think that's their way of saying, are you kidding me, Jesus? There is no way in the world that we can do that. Jesus says, yes, you can. Even if you have a little bit of faith, you can do it. But that's not all Jesus says to them. Because when you move into the last part of this section, what Jesus is saying is that it comes down not just to having faith, but it's about being a servant. You need a servant's heart to live in a relationship like this. And I think the key principle of this passage is that we are able to think more about others than about ourselves as we commit ourselves to being servants of one another. That's not easy. It goes against the grain of how we measure success and worth. When I was in high school, I I worked in a meatpacking plant. And I I loved that job. Uh, You know, my main job was to load boxes of hamburgers and meat onto the trucks that the salesman then took out and delivered. But during the summertime, I worked full-time, and so I'd unload sides of beef out of the truck, and sometimes I got to box up the meat. Uh, I, I loved being there. I had friends who couldn't take it. I know one friend of mine, this big, burly football player, he lasted one day, and he said, I can't eat if I work at this place any longer. Uh, it didn't seem to bother me. I loved it. The, the guy who owned the place, was a, he was a gruff guy. He walked around smoking these nasty cigars, which wasn't always bad because you could usually smell him before you saw him. So if you weren't doing what you should be doing, you'd get to work. If he happened to catch you standing like this, invariably he would look at you, pull that cigar out of his mouth, and in the gruffest voice possible say, get your hands out of my pockets. And then you'd walk on and you'd run back to work so you didn't get fired. I think we tend to see that model as the master and being successful. I mean, the whole struggle is we want to be masters because we don't really like being servants. And in our society, in our culture, it's about being a master. It's about controlling things. It's about being on top of things. It's about being able to tell other people what to do. And even in the church, we are trained early on. It's the famous people we emulate. It's the famous people who have got it all together. Even when we talk about servanthood, we say, there's a famous servant. Be like them. Actually, Servanthood is a lot more about the small, everyday kinds of things than about the big things that people see. It's those little, unknown kinds of things that proves the value and the worth of us as servants. Fred Craddock says, we go through life putting out effort here and effort there. We listen to neighbors' kids' troubles Instead of um, telling him to get lost, we go to committee meetings. We give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty. And he says, you know, usually giving our life for Christ isn't all that glorious as servants. It's just those little acts of love. Woman says, tells of being of her job being a child care provider and said, I'm, I'm often tempted to complain that I don't really do anything for the kingdom. I just babysit. 
And one day a father came to pick up his daughter and he said, I just want to tell you that we've noticed you taught Casey to pray. And she prays at all of our meals now. And my wife and I were saying today, you know, maybe we ought to start thinking about going back to church. And he said, all of a sudden, she said, all of a sudden God hit me with his word that I was doing something important. Even if other people didn't see it. So now when people ask what I do for a living, I smile and say, I just babysit for the Lord. I said, it's really not, it's really hard to see the eternal value of running a damp sponge over 20,000 envelope flaps. But in a sense, that's the point. Seeing the eternal value of what we're doing really isn't the issue. It's just a being willing to serve, whatever that service may be. We need hearts that are more concerned about caring for others than about taking care of ourselves. More concerned of giving than taking. And then you see that in the middle of, of of the things that Jesus says in the opening verses here about relationships. It's only when we have that kind of servant heart that our relationships take on the kind of perspective and meaning and value that we were hoping. We serve others by influencing them. And so we don't say as a servant, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want, and the effects on you is not my problem. As a servant, we realize it's really not my life. And I'm going to sacrifice the urges that I may have because I know it's going to have an effect on impressionable people. But it's not just negative, it's also positive. It's not just what we don't do, it's what we are doing. What are we doing in the church for for the people around us who are the least of these, the little ones? What are we doing for our children? How are you involved with children in the church? Praying for them. Being involved in Sunday school or Awana or the nursery or the youth group. What are you doing that's, that's pushing you beyond just what's comfortable because of the positive influence it could have on one of these little ones? We serve others by how we confront them. You don't lash out at people. You don't respond out of anger or resentment or vengeance. You speak only when you see people heading down a path of destruction. And you only speak because you care so deeply for them. Because of the love in your heart for them. You speak only because you've earned the right to speak as a trusted friend. You respond only because you are convinced with your servant heart that speaking to them is the most loving thing for you to do. And it's always about sin, not about differences of opinion. I have to tell you, I've been burdened recently as some folks have come to me and and told me of receiving some anonymous letters, chastising them, criticizing them harshly for what the, the, the unnamed writers felt was some wrong that they did. That, that bothers me. I mean, it's, it's not even Christian, 
much less servant-like. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you do that and say, I'm a servant? Servants, if there is an issue, confront face-to-face and in a spirit of love and restoration. Not because we're angry or offended. We serve others by how we forgive them. And when you're hurt, you want to hang on to that. You expect the person to, that, that hurt you to take responsibility, to deal with it, and to, to come and make it right. We have a tendency to make people prove their worth and their repentance before we will forgive them. We sort of subconsciously say, well, when you do enough penance, I'll think about it. But Jesus says, if you're a servant and someone says, forgive me, you forgive them, period. And you do it again and again and again because you're a servant. And you say, well, they're taking advantage of me. Servants get taken advantage of. Not just sometimes, a lot of times. That's sort of what being a servant is about. But you forgive. And you give up your right to hang on to that bitterness. Because your life is not about you. It's about serving others. And our civil law operates pretty much on punishment. The gospel is about grace. Our law repels forgiveness The gospel is looking for every opportunity we can to forgive. Because that's what servants do. This call to be servants is one of the reasons why I feel so strongly, I'm so committed to the church. And the importance of connecting ourselves with other people within a local congregation of people. Because in the church, we're going to have difficulties. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to struggle. We're going to hurt each other. And the most natural thing to do is to run. Say, well, I'll I'll just go somewhere else. Jesus, I think, is saying to us, stay. Work it out. Figure it out. Be servants of one another. That's what my kingdom is about. Can you imagine if we all had that kind of servant perspective, not just toward each other, but toward other people too, how it would change our church and this area and even our world. Maybe it would be said of us, my, how they love and serve one another. Jesus' call to serve flies in the face of our our typical perspectives about being Christians in a fallen world. In a world that we often perceive to be more and more antagonistic toward us. Not too long ago, I heard someone address a crowd of of Christians talking about social concerns. And, And as he talked about the most important social concerns in which Christians should be involved, I realized that as I began to process that, that Everything he was talking about was about what affected us. 
you know, and, and he was saying that the social concerns that we ought to address are the ones that make life difficult for us. So if Christian rights are being removed from us, then the social concern, that's a social concern we need to address. And if Christian freedom to say and do whatever we want is being taken away from us, then that's a social concern that we need to address. And he mentioned, yeah, there are other needs, you know, famine, genocide, human trafficking, poverty, things like that. But that was secondary. All those, it was clear all those were secondary to what was happening to us. And I walked away shaking my head and thinking, this is crazy. And in that moment, the Lord said to me, like, you don't feel that way a lot of times? We want our rights. We want our power. We want the world to submit to us. And Jesus is telling us we're servants. Servants really don't have rights. We just serve. What this all falls back on is that we are servants because we are disciples of the servant. I'm continually amazed that as Isaiah particularly prophesies about Jesus, the Messiah, it's in servant language. In the passage you read from chapter 42, he speaks of my servant. I keep coming back to the most powerful words of Paul to the Philippians who says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ had. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on human form, the nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. No one has more right to reject the call to be a servant than Jesus. And yet Jesus says that he comes to serve, even to give his very life. It's at the heart of our faith. And it's at the heart of this table. This table, which is all about the sacrifice Christ makes for us. Every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded that God became one of us. A servant sacrificed himself. And that same calling is on you and it's on me to live with one another in a spirit of servanthood. If we want our relationships to be profitable and productive and positive, we need to be servants. Gordon MacDonald once said, you can tell whether you're becoming like a servant or not by the way you respond when people treat you like one.
So, how are we responding? In a moment, we're going we're gonna to come to this table. And Christ invites every one of us to come as his servants. And we're invited to come because Christ, the servant, has sacrificed for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit of Christ. We want to be more than just followers of Christ. We want to be filled with the spirit of Christ. Make us servants. Father, we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray that that as we receive the bread and the cup into our bodies, we may be stirred anew for the sacrifice of Christ. That we may be empowered to live as servants with one another and in this world. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open. And if you would like to stay and pray, we invite you to do so. Uh, there are trays in the back for those of you who may find it difficult to walk to the front or would prefer not to, and uh, just let the, uh, the usher know as your row is being released, and we'll be glad to serve you in your seat. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It simply means you don't need to be a member of this church. It may be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a heart open to Christ, Desiring to be a servant of Christ and a servant of others. You desire to receive the grace of God in your heart. And you are wholeheartedly invited to come and to receive these gifts from the hand of our gracious Heavenly Father.